0: The taboo is finally breaking around mental health. But are we really that unhappy? If so, why? What's the secret to happiness? The traditional narrative tells us that our hyper-connected lives online are only making us more isolated. Time spent indoors in front of screens is not natural for humans and is destroying our mental health. But what's really going on here? Is it digital technology that's really the problem? I want to know if it can be part of the solution too. To find out more, join me, Matt Millington, as we plug in to Invent Health, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company TTP. Today we ask Do digital therapeutics hold the answer to better mental health? Hello, and welcome to Invent Health, a podcast about the future of health and technology. In today's episode, we're tackling a subject which has never been in the spotlight more than now, mental health. Long hidden behind a stiff upper lip, well, at least in the UK, mental health is now at the forefront of the global healthcare conversation. And so it should be. When you hear statistics like suicide being the biggest killer of men under 40, you realize that this is not an issue that should remain hidden, quite the opposite. So what's caused the change? Well, the pandemic has certainly shined a light on it, but generational and cultural shifts have moved the topic from being a hidden taboo to being out in the open. People are finally talking, and that can only be good. They've gone so far, in fact, that an entire industry has sprung up to meet our mental health needs. The commercial wellness industry is now valued at around $4.5 trillion, with various companies claiming that they have the antidote to ditch the blues and the anxiety, a cure to make you constantly happy. But is this what we need? Is happiness a realistic or sensible goal for mental health? And just how has the topic become such a big player in the healthcare space? I wanted to speak to someone working in the mental health industry, someone literally in the business of making people better, to hear their thoughts on where the world's mental health is really at. So I got in touch with an old friend of mine, Adonis Buchakra, the co-founder and chief product officer of Epsi, a Swiss company who provides stigma-free access to mental health care by matching up psychotherapists and coaches with the people who need them. I asked him if he thought the conversation about our deteriorating mental health was all hyperbole, or if the stats showed that the decline is actually real. Do you think our mental health is actually getting worse, or do you think we're just becoming more of aware more aware of it?
1: Yeah, that's, that's I think, a fair question. It's It would be tough to, to start to say that it's getting worse, because uh, worse. Because actually, we, we haven't even started the whole topic, in my opinion. At the moment, I think it's a starting, starting, mini starting point of that whole topic. Really, we just touched the the, the tip of the iceberg. And uh, it's very interesting what's happening around. It's very interesting to start to open up on those topics to be more and more okay, which is, by the way, at no means still destigmatize the topic at all. It's still really, really heavy down there. Um, but my God, this is, uh, yeah, this is just getting started. And I don't think it's getting worse. I do think think that the, the rhythm and the style of, of us and trying to keep up with the rhythm of fast speed and more and more element this is getting to a certain degree worse, um, but generally mental health for years and everything, this is us as human being in this planet, trying to navigate around the world and, uh, and finally we can talk and open up about it.
0: I mean, I, I, I think what you said just now is, is certainly very interesting. I, I can't really ask you the question of whether it's getting worse or not because we don't know what the normal state of our mental health is. So do you think this is why digital technology seems to be a bit of a poster child uh, and, and a good solution to address mental health issues? That's
1: fair. That would be fair to start with. I think let's let's maybe talk about digital as a as a whole here because it's it's both the 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 great groundbreaking element that kind of help us to maybe navigate through this massive am- amount of data. It's also a massive source of stress, anxiety, and everything. I kind of find out that the the human aspect around that last year, especially with COVID, but talking to people around in a pub or uh, a pub if it's if it was still open but okay, yeah gathering around and asking friends and having that that human conversation that's where you kind of realize that mental health is around and everyone is struggling to a certain bit almost everyone has a story related to a certain stress and a depth about it
0: so yeah i'm i'm thinking that you know people when they when they're trying to address mental health with technology automatically go down the, oh, what can we do with AI? It sounds like it's very difficult to do because it involves dealing with people and, and getting lots of people on board. Yeah. And
1: and if, if I may, on that point, just shortly, because when you start technology first, the the, the goal is always to, uh, always not, but mostly to get to a point where you can diagnose people. That's what I see around with, with a lot of tech driven company. You can diagnose yourself. Cool. Now you're burned out. Or depressed to 65.5%. And now what? Cool. I, I got my diagnosis. I know what I kind of have. And then you're in a box. That's it. So rather than knowing what you have is let's talk about it. Let's have that conversation. Let's uh, try to, to to dive into you as yourself and try to see what is the, the best methods that we can do um, to support you as a, as a, as a person.
0: As Adonis says, the conversation around mental health always initially focuses on diagnoses, about assessing the severity of each specific person's issue. This is where mental health care begins, so I wanted to know exactly how these diagnoses are made. We've spoken before about the trickiness of accessing biomarkers when dealing with psychological issues in the first episode of this series, so I already know that finding the data behind issues of the mind is incredibly difficult. So I knew I needed to speak with someone who could break down this issue of data to see whether Adonis' commercial and anecdotal evidence of a mental health crisis was indeed real. I got in touch with a couple of people whose work in the digital mental health arena is second to none. Rashmi Patel is a Health Data Research UK fellow in the Department of Psychosis Studies at King's College London. And Jordan Abdi is the Strategy and Business Development Lead at Holmusk, a company building the largest real-world evidence platform, starting with behavioural health. Both their work in health data analysis is world-leading and changing the way we analyse mental health. I asked them how they would go about discussing mental health in a way which matches the very specific needs that it brings up, Should mental health care have a fundamental end goal? I certainly associate the word health uh, with that of physical health, which brings with it a a certain um, amount of expectation. So, you know, if I've got a broken leg, it's quite easy to point to that broken leg. It's either broken or it's not. And my broken leg is similar to lots of other people's broken legs. Whereas with mental health... it, it's much more fluid than that. It's much more on a spectrum. John, do you think there's a difference between physical and mental health? And what do you think those differences might be?
2: Mental health, if we should call it that, is in some ways also quite different from physical health in that unlike physical health, it's not tied, at least as I understand it, and as I think as the academic understand it, it's not tied to age in the same way that your physical health is. With mental health, it doesn't, it doesn't follow the same pattern. It doesn't doesn't, uh, sit alongside your age in the same way. And I think that that leads to a different way in which we should approach or think about mental health as separate from from physical health. We, We risk, I often think, we risk, you know, as mental health and psychiatry accelerates in terms of evidence basis, we risk building health systems that almost mimic the growth and development of physical health systems. And I think there's lots of reasons why that's bad. But one of them is that actually your mental health is not something that's subject to decline. It's something that we should think about a little more proactively uh, and routine and normal into maintaining a state of well-being that is acceptable to the individual uh, and that they can live and function in normal, healthy life in not the same way that we think about physical health.
0: The world at the moment is pushing happiness onto us. As if it's the new wealthy, you should aspire to be happy. But I've always had a niggling feeling that permanent happiness is would be unhealthy.
3: Yeah, that's uh, no, that's that's true. I mean, it's it's normal to have a range of emotional responses uh, to what might be joyous uh, events in your life or difficult events in your life, um, and you know the degree to which happiness correlates with health. There are are inevitably going to be some points in your life uh, which are difficult, experiencing bereavement or problems with relationship. And this is, uh, you know, a normal part of development. Um, And I think, uh, you know, it comes to maybe philosophical question. and, And if you if you had the option to not feel sadness if you could flick a switch uh, and somehow uh, your mind would would no longer uh, be able to feel sad? Would you want to flick that switch? Um, And what would it mean to to live in a life where you didn't have that contrast? Um, It would seem to me it would be quite flat. There wouldn't necessarily the happiness would be less meaningful. What what would be happiness if there were no sadness to kind of uh, uh, um, sort of balance
2: it? I think what's key here is, I mean, there's going to be points in your life that are ultimately going to be uh, slightly more joyous or more sad. That's natural. And there's a whole sequence of well-known, well-documented, normal human experiences that should elicit different emotional reactions that are healthy and normal and should not be labelled with uh, illness, for for sure. And I think we are a little close to maybe labelling certain emotions, particularly sadness, as fundamentally pathological, when actually it's a normal human response yeah. to certain stresses. Whilst you're absolutely right, mental well-being, and actually your mental health will fluctuate, it's not subject to the same inevitable decline mm-hmm. that your physical health is. And actually, you can have you know, a very happy, healthy, in fact, I slipped there myself, I said happy as though that itself is a state of, of well-being. Um, You can be, you know, of of great well-being well into your 90s, psychologically um, have the sense of well-being uh, that you will not necessarily have if, you know, when you compare to physical health.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And so there there are a huge amount of funding going into the impact of what you might call stress on physiological health or, or, or illness. And I mean, the first question is what you define as stress. Um, Stress, again, it's not a sort of uh, scale from 1 to 10. Mm. It could be, be a different type of stress. And obviously, extreme stress is very harmful. And whether that comes from psychological stress or physical stress. And we know that people who have experienced adverse childhood events or adverse events in childhood are at much greater risk of experiencing problems with their mental health in adulthood. And I think that's very clear. On the flip side of it, I think it's true to say that... To a certain degree, stress can be maybe not so much protective, but it can be something that, that helps you to a certain degree. For example, the anxiety curve. We know that actually a little bit of anxiety... Can increase your performance in certain tasks. If you're a professional athlete, or if you're an actor and your adrenaline is is, is going, and uh, potentially that little bit of stress can give you uh, an edge in your performance. But once you go beyond the, the the sort of useful bit, and then you you know you have too much, that's when things can uh, deteriorate.
0: Well, you heard it here first. Stress, it turns out, can be beneficial. But one area of the world which is saying the opposite and pushing constant happiness as the ultimate goal is the wellness industry. I wanted to know Rashmi and Jordan's thoughts on this. So that word wellness, I think, is is very interesting. Uh, it's used a lot. Um, I think the wellness, last time I Googled it, the wellness industry was coming up for being worth nearly $4 trillion. Wow! Um, so it, it is growing rapidly. How do you think... The wellness industry kind of butts up or 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 interfaces with that kind of transition from when somebody is managing their their mental health to being actually requiring some kind of intervention
2: i think this is this is a this is the most important question i think healthcare is facing uh in our time because in my view the growth the first thing i'll say is the wellness industry can be a good thing but there are plenty of examples where wellness companies and wellness solutions are un They sit on sort of pseudoscience and they can be harmful. And there are plenty of studies and plenty of cases where I think we can think or we don't have to name anything specifically here. Um, but fundamentally, the reason why you have a wellness industry worth $4 trillion, I think you said, in the first place, is because there's all this demand from otherwise healthy people who just want to stay healthy. There's no mechanism inside the established evidence-based healthcare system for which they can enter and engage in sort of healthy practice without being labelled as being the worried well, or without being seen as some kind of burden on the rest of the healthcare uh, users. And so fundamentally you have this situation where individual human beings who at the end of the day are just trying to maintain a state of physical and, and mental well-being are in a situation where either they go down this road of pursuing evidence-based clinical care um, and finding actually it's not built for them at all and instead finding other solutions. I think the the big challenge that healthcare needs to rise to is actually how do we engage these healthy people uh, in the healthcare system in a way that they can meaningfully improve their well-being and health um, and not have to go down a dangerous path.
3: Yeah, and I think there's an interesting idea also, uh, as you mentioned, around the interface uh, maybe with the wellness industry and healthcare industry and where actually there could be some opportunity, because the fact is, we will all be patients one day. I mean, that is inevitable. Um, and, you know, there there is potentially a lot of opportunity for some of the approaches in which you might provide to people who are who are supposedly if you want to use the word healthy um not not necessarily receiving uh, care from the healthcare industry um and learn from it and use some of the data and insights to inform uh preventative practices the other thing i would say is that um the concept of of wellness i think is very broad and i think a lot of uh commercial sectors are involved in health maybe not realizing it but Um, Things like, for example, the food we eat and those little nudges actually potentially could have a massive impact on population health. I think I think there's a huge um, uh, opportunity to make use of um, some some of this technology and really shift um, things, you know, in terms of uh, factors which can help prevent uh, serious illness later on in life.
0: The growth of the wellness industry has its positives and negatives. Yes, it's shone an important light on an issue too long locked away, but its more pseudo-scientific leanings could actually be detrimental to people who need effective care the most. I went back to Adonis to discuss this in terms of his own mental health care company, Epsi. Epsi, in many ways, is attempting to bridge that gap between consumer wellness and the true mental health care world. It's been designed to be an aspirational brand, to engage with people through great design and brand purpose, much like those leading in the wellness field. But rather than promoting specific cures, EPSI simply exists to put people in touch with the mental health professionals and care when they need it. It's leveraging one of the true superpowers of digital, its inherent ability to reach people at scale. Tell me tell me about EPSI and, and how that works. So actually, we, we started off human in the centre, And then
1: we look at after months and months of of research and talking to people before even touching any digital product, we talked to a lot of people and we figure out that there is this kind of fear curve happening around with four stages. The first stage being... I'm a normal human being going through life. Uh, everything is going well, no issue. And so mental health is not at all in my topic. That's others. That's not me. Never going to happen to me. That's stage one. Stage two is starting to have life coming up to you a bit more tense, uh, maybe a, a panic here and there, not maybe connecting it directly to mental health, but a bit of back pain, can't sleep very well, or these type of elements that pile up. And stage three there are people who, who have passed through a spike of, of pain. Uh, very high element of pain that could be a loss of someone breakup or anything very deep in that element and at that level these people really need help right now they are either in a in a panic mode panic attack or anything like that and this is where help needs to be done and the stage four is really how to follow up with that as soon as you get a bit of help how do you kind of continue and to live a, a healthier lifestyle around it? So we started EPSI with the stage three, the highest pain where people, where we could actually have an impact. Uh, we're a super small team. So we needed to be quite clear on the idea that we need to help people at the spike of the, of the pain. Here at that lem- element, we, we looked around and we said, how can we help that individual who is passing by an extreme element of pain, an AI, a chatbot, uh, anything like this? I wouldn't feel comfortable to go through a loved one and say when they are passing by a deep, deep um, element in their life to hand away a little app that tells you how do you feel like that type of stuff. It's it's too light for such a topic. So if you look around at the, the, um, the skills that's happening around, there are people who have studied for years doing a master degree plus years in clinical elements and talking to other human beings who have had the skill to talk to, to, to us and those are named psychotherapists. So we started with that one and we started to connect a psychotherapist with their client to have this around. Um, we looked at it around and said, shouldn't be that hard, right? You're connecting to another human being. So we started to call up psychotherapists and say, hey, uh, we would love to to, to have a, a client for you. And uh, they said, yeah, cool. I'm fully booked for the next six weeks, eight weeks. So your client can, can come in two months. Like, okay. So there seems to be a problem of a deep problem of access. If you want to get help at the highest point, talking to a professional and having the money to pay for it, there is a chance that there isn't even the person there for you. So that was a huge red alert for us to say, we need to solve this one. Epsi has something a bit more from the look and feel, a bit more lifestyley. So Epsi is a nice brand, nice colors, beautiful image on the website. The idea that it's almost a premium brand that you would have around. This was super important for us to destigmatize the topic, to not see it as a medical product, like this uh, this this medical green that you don't want to have or the, the blue that you come in. Come on, this is just awful as an experience. So it needs to be that beautiful brand that you have around. So to try to position is that as a normal product, as a normal brand, that was also our strategy to kind of reposition this whole idea of mental health into a more uh, an OK space. My dream here is to have a moment where people, friends are around in pubs and have the the epsi app on the table and not feeling ashamed at all to say oh no i'm i'm having i'm having epsi this is there is no problem at all to talk about it not something that they have to hide or to say oh no no but i'm talking to a psychotherapist but i'm a bit ashamed i hope that this comes in one day where you can almost be yeah proud to have that product around and and uh, and talk about it
0: i mean that that's that's where i think historically that the word brand uh, comes across as quite fluffy, but it's a very powerful tool that does a job. Um, and certainly the way you've executed the Epsi brand, it looks, um, it looks aspirational. It is not medical. It doesn't, it, it, it sort of destigmatizes the topic. Um, so do you feel that's helped drive engagement? Extremely, I would
1: say from both sides, because we're still a two-sided platform where we need to acquire psychotherapists joining Epsi. And the other side, we need to have clients. So on both sides, they needed to attract. We know that one key um, added value of EPSI is really the look and feel, the ease of use, this this beautiful aspect, this emotional aspect about the topic that we put our heart and love into it, like really, and we're developing all, everything in-house, everything is designed by hand. There is no, these frameworks and things around. So this is really handmade. And this beauty, I think that our client starts to, to appreciate it as well. And we're there for them. And this was a key important bits of, uh, of EPSI here and to bring this humane access. Um, yeah. The whole thing. So, a lot of little elements that, that goes around to try to destigmatize the topic as much as we can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what you've touched on there is something I would call the kind of consumerization of healthcare. Um, traditionally, digital therapeutics um, and disease management platforms, that kind of thing, they have very low um, engagement levels, really low when you consider them against an Uber Eats or, you know, a a Netflix or another digital platform. But why, when it comes to my healthcare, do I not get that from a a, from a digital therapeutic or a disease management platform?
1: Yeah, I think on, on that one, there is a massive aspect of economic behind. I think it also depends because there is a there is a big thing behind that as long as you're bringing better access to mental health, you're also extremely making the cost uh, explode for everyone. This is a massive element why it hasn't been yet um, uh, consumerized perfectly. Because as soon as the, the user is not paying for their own care, but they wait for someone else to pay, we have a weird incentive system that's happening around. As long as there is a middleman in between, then I have an issue because the middleman is saying, hey, 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 try not to bring too much doors open try to close a bit. We're trying to make sure we're trying to diagnose people first, because we don't want to have everyone going into that funnel. We're trying to have the only the two, 3% that really needs it. The rest, I'm sorry, but we can't help, help at all. Um, And I think this is what's happening behind. Um, And so my hope is that if we, if we bring it a bit closer to, to the user and, um, Yeah, we have a better incentive to design for the the client directly or not.
0: Okay, so do you think one of the, the most important shifts that we're seeing is not necessarily the digital technology, but it's more around bringing the issue of mental health front and center and removing those stereotypes and enabling humans to talk to other humans about how they're feeling? That's
1: pretty much it yeah and then technology comes in as, as a, as a superpower if, if used well to say if you are in a little village and having no one to talk to and maybe uh, uh, not the same mindset around where do you turn yourself to to have these conversations where can you where, where can you engage with people like you or suffering or going through tough situations then technology becomes a great tool where you can connect with someone around the globe that has exactly the same issue or passed by the same is it breakup or, uh, or uh, losing a loved one and their uh, technology is, is a fantastic tool But technology by itself here would not be the answer to to figure it out that that the society is uh, is i wouldn't say sick but the society is in a tough position at the moment to struggle to go to to
0: go through their days yeah yeah so i love that that phrase that the, the digital is a superpower, it's certainly what I believe. So is your approach to start with the human rather than, you know, some interesting technology or, or a fascinating piece of machine learning?
1: <laughs> For a topic like mental health, it's 100% human first, 100%, really importantly. So my co-founder and I, when we started EPSI, we, we really said, hey, uh, let's start really with the, with the human in the center, even if this sentence seems to be quite normal. But, but it is indeed this, because it's, it's not just the human at the center. It's the human at the center is extremely complicated. Which human is in that center? Everyone is absolutely different.
0: So it's, it's, yeah, who do we place in the middle? Sure. So what opportunities do you think technology provides in helping us to be more human rather than, you know, getting in the way of us being more human?
1: the first role of of technology here in that moment is just to realize that maybe having more and more of of social medias and things around that is actually social is might not be might actually close yourself up to be more alone and uh, to to have less of that kind of human technology so one element of technology here it would be to to actually Realize, to make us realize that maybe this is not the final answer of it. That would be the one negative side of it to make us realize let's come back to something more human to human. We're using technology also very well with Epsi. And in that side, it helps our client to connect with, a, with a, here a a psychotherapist across Switzerland. So you don't need to be at the same position. You don't need to have, by chance, a psychotherapist being your neighbour to talk to someone in need. You can talk to that perfect match and professional person, even across the country.
0: Technology versus the human, not for the human. It's an issue we've been coming up against time and time again in making this series about the future of healthcare. Whether it's in surgery or eye care, it's consistently hard to know when it's the right time to switch to a groundbreaking tech solution, or when a well-trained human will do the whole thing better with intuition and learned skill. Well, one place where we humans are never going to be able to match up to technology is in collecting and collating vast amounts of data. And in the mental health realm, data is a notoriously slippery subject. It's also something which Jordan and Rashmi are both trying to tackle head-on, specifically at Holmesk. Holmusk are literally building the world's biggest real-world data platform using a system built by a team at Duke University. I went back to them to see what role data has to play in the mental health realm and what difficulties and challenges they come across because of it.
2: Unlike other disease areas, mental health does not have clear, you know, objective biomarkers by which you can... Assess burden of disease with heart disease. You can mass sample echocardiograms. You can uh, blood test. You can look at Alzheimer's rates based on MRI scans. With mental health, it's entirely. Uh almost entirely, a personal and subjective experience that is captured in a very subjective way in clinical assessment. Uh, And only when and only where patients come forward and are clinically assessed. Even today, where mental Health has such awareness, we have no means by which we can objectively assess and measure uh, mental health burden at scale. It's entirely and especially personal by virtue of the condition, and there's very little in the way we can do to mass sample and mass screen for mental health and start to sort of track um, or index mental well being uh, at scale. And we are not really close to getting to a level where we are with oncology or, or Alzheimer's or other uh, disease areas where we can really start to objectively say what is the current burden of mental illness in a, in a very granular way.
0: And I, I'm making an assumption here, but I'm assuming. Patient data around mental health is much more, probably much more dense, less binary than, say, physical health. Is that a fair assumption?
2: I would say yes and no. Yes, in that absolutely, uh, fundamentally, you know, the mental health sits very much on a spectrum. So there's so many ways in which you can characterise someone's well being, and there are so many domains by which you can do that, and there are so many scales you can use, and so you get an immensely rich view. But the other side is actually we're pretty blind. Uh, and we have fairly blunt tools, if we were to use uh, such characterization to assess the mind and to assess how well we're doing. If, we, you know, if you were to look at the richness, per se, of how well one could characterise a lung tumour, I could do a genome analysis, I could tell you exactly where the mutation was and, and, and what the, that mutation looks like and what the prognostic looks like for that specific type of mutation. And the level of granularity I could zoom into with a tumour is so much more advanced then any psychiatrist, and Rashmi, correct me if you feel otherwise, but any depth one could characterise someone's depression.
3: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There are no validated biomarkers for any of the mental disorders. And huge amounts of resource have gone in to trying to identify, for example, genetic markers or neuroimaging markers, which could indicate a subtype yeah. of mental disorder which might respond to a particular treatment. And that's a big challenge. And I think going forwards, how do you address a challenge like that? It's trying to get more granularity in the data, so trying to understand a bit of the nuance. And as Jordan said, the representation of mental health data in healthcare records is quite unstructured. And that I think is where the new technology could help us. Techniques such as natural language processing, text mining techniques, which can automatically pull out meaning uh, and context from all of this unstructured data and turn it into more structured data, which you could then use to, for example, in biomarker studies to find the nuance in in the clinical presentation, which links to the underlying biology.
0: What Rashmi and Jordan are trying to do at Holmusk is to create a powerful resource for research and development to understand mental health's notoriously tricky biomarkers and put them together in such a way that we can understand mental health disorders at scale. Before the proliferation of machine learning, gathering, organising and interrogating the inherently complex and unstructured mental health data was practically impossible to do. Digital obviously represents a massive opportunity to scale care and even offer preventative care before before anything turns bad as it were. What are you guys doing in this space at the moment?
2: Yeah, so we really sit at the in the evidence space. It's worth saying that mental health probably has the weakest and this is quite a dramatic statement, but the weakest evidence base of all therapeutic areas. So at us what we are really trying to do is sit take three or four steps back and say what can we do to improve the evidence base for clinical care and mental health. And what we are very fortunate and privileged to have is one of the richest mental health, psychiatric-specific data sets in the world. About 20 years in longitudinality, 560,000 patients initially developed by Duke, a system called MindLink. This was developed over 20 years ago by by leaders who were sort of ahead of their time, who developed MindLink very much for research purposes. So in the outset, in the EHR interface, when clinicians were collecting and recording clinical information, there were fields taken to one side from the main sort of free text area where you would insert clinical notes to input important structured information. And what I mean by this is some of those validated clinical scores, like some of the depression scales we mentioned earlier, separated in a way that it means that all patient encounters are labelled. And then what you can immediately start to do is understand patient journeys as understood through clinical assessment through time. Through this long, longitudinal view, and by being able to characterise patients at scale, you open up doors to understanding: is depression just one condition, or is it twenty different subconditions that look very similar at the surface level? And you can also start to see, you know, which therapies work in which groups, and where may there be opportunity for earlier intervention
0: have you got a specific case study or, a, or example of a, a kind of a real life flow of how this data might might move and how you can turn it into value
2: yeah i mean that we, we we do a whole range of studies i mean but the most exciting ones we've published are some of the comparative efficacy studies yeah. on how well different therapeutics do in different cohorts and you can start to tease out here using real world data you know, what actually works for different types of patients and actually patients at different stages of their condition. Clinical trials in mental health represent about 2% of the population. Now, clinical trials are the gold standard. Real-world evidence is never going to replace the clinical trial. Mm. The clinical trials also have their limitations in how well they can represent their population and also how realistic the quality of care that a patient might receive inside a clinical trial setting as opposed to the real world. When you look at real-world data, immediately you can start to see what actually works in the real world and what doesn't. And how can we start to improve clinical practice and clinical workflows such that we are always optimising for the patient as opposed to optimising you know, for the clinical trial patient who is perhaps a little far removed from what you may see in your typical clinical practice. Rashmi, I'm not sure if that, if that sort of characterization you'd agree with.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And to conceptualise it, I think there's maybe three components to it. The evidence generation that Jordan was describing using these large scale data sets to really have a bit more of a granular view on uh, mental illness and you know different subtypes uh, and an understanding of the uh, complexity of the patient journey uh, receives mental health care. It's documented in the EHR. And I'd say of all the clinical systems in a healthcare service, the EHR is the most central. So let's imagine that you have developed or generated a lot of knowledge from the uh, real-world data from EHRs in a particular setting. You could then flip that and actually take that knowledge back into the clinic. Let's say that you have discovered that there is a, a particular subgroup of people who may benefit from a switch in their medication. It might be people with... Uh, treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant schizophrenia, you could develop an automated system to identify these individuals in the clinic and flag it up to the clinician to say, actually, maybe it's worth yeah. thinking to switch medication or, 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 or review the medication. So that that's the second bit. And then the third bit is the digital therapeutics bit, the idea of bringing healthcare to the individual, rather than it simply being something they come to when they attend the clinic. And through the smartphone, a, a clinician could deliver interventions that could be particularly helpful to an individual and also ask them to record data. It sounds very simple. Actually, it would make a massive difference.
2: Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with, with the emission. I think we have to be careful, though, when we talk about Data linkages, bringing in spiritual data, diet and you know the full breadth of someone's existence into a single place we're seeing at the moment uh, with the, the, the little political drama I guess surrounding NHS digital's ambition to link GP data and tokenize that for, for analysis. Now what's clear is NHS digital have the ambition and they realize what could be possible in terms of healthcare innovation with that asset. however, the, the other side of that conversation is is all of that data being linked necessary? Because the moment we start stepping over into collecting and linking more data that's necessary, then we risk uh, increasing the risk of breaches or data being abused without any additional gain.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I always love to talk about that, that catch-22 between, you know, the digital only works through a certain modicum of trust. And when that trust is broken, the whole thing falls down. Um, and yet, as you said, it would be unethical for us not to use data to be able to improve our collective mental health. So, what what ways do you think we might um, straddle that problem of of trust versus access?
3: Yeah, um, I think it's extremely. I think trust is extremely important, as uh, you know, Jordan was saying, and uh you know overall i think the approach is bring people with you at every step of the process uh patients uh carers the public should be involved right at the beginning uh in the ideas of how we can use data uh the design of uh, you know research studies uh data linkages um and involve them also in uh the the data governance side uh so for example access to the data i think it it should be Required that people who want to access the data ha- ha- justify their reasons for doing so to the patients. You know, I think I think if they, um, if if patients and the public have that degree of ownership and they have the last final say, um, that that is how you achieve trust.
0: This concept of using patient data is clearly divisive. It's very valuable from a commercial perspective in helping you tailor your products and services to your customers needs keeping them engaged and adherent to their therapy but it also brings up serious issues surrounding ethics privacy and trust that both rashmi and jordan alluded to when you're talking about something as personal as mental health having trust in the provider who is the recipient and custodian of your data is beyond vital it's something that adonis and his company epsi take extremely seriously as a somebody suffering with mental health, I may have an issue with trust, you know, can I actually trust this service? What are they going to do with my data? How, how important do you think that, that, thing of that element of purpose is when it comes to engendering trust in the user?
1: Yeah interesting so there is there is purpose within the team this is the first element that we need to have within a, a very young startup so purpose at that one is the driving force of everything for me it would be it's actually the holy grail because i didn't i quit my job only for that purpose element around only to try to to, to truly make something that is uh, that is that is added value so if we would be a, a data driven company then we might have an issue because it's going to be a tough journey to to bring some trust with the user to say, look, we really need a lot of data from you and everything's for free. You get all the therapy for free. That's fine. Just kind of
0: do it and, and, and everything. And this might be a, a bit of an issue. So we were, we were talking about trust uh, and the importance of engendering trust particularly in a a digital platform for mental health could you explain some of the ways that you've you've tried to address that exactly so i think the first one is the incentive of us as a company what are we trying
1: to incentivize as as a success measure if we would have again uh a data-driven kind of company, only data-driven, then you can start to see some fishy stuff. For example, um, everything's for free. A free therapy session with a professional person from from Zurich and suddenly everything's for free. You go, oh, what is happening behind actually? Because they need to make money somewhere. If you want to have a psychotherapist at the moment, this is the price and this is how much you need to pay for it. And the price mostly goes to the the psychotherapist at the end. So the trust is rather, they need to trust the platform to a good degree to give a, a bit of data so that we can suggest them their best match at the moment or the best kind of suggestion for them. And then they're left together with the with the coach or the, the, the therapist. So the therapist and the person needs to have that kind of relationship that you would have with a normal human being. This is one element. The second element, we're doing a lot of handmade thing. We have a fantastic CTO in the team, um, coding everything and encrypting everything behind. So we're having, for example, the chat tool or the video tool that we're using. We're always trying to have that kind of um, encryption level. Where is the server? Where is your data located? We're really proud to say that the data is here located in Zurich. This is also a nice kind of relationship between technology and, and, uh, and, and the user to say, hey, there is nothing too fishy behind. It's always like sliding around because we're in a technology world where we cannot assure uh, 100% security all the time. But we're trying to put all the measure in place to to, to bring this trust around and and having that around. And we're trying also not to have too much um, personal information. A lot of stuff we actually don't need to suggest you a a, a great match, actually. So, yeah.
0: The point is, we're still in the early stages of putting these new mental health care systems into place but they could ultimately give us the tools and the information to get a better handle on improving our collective mental health, using data and artificial intelligence to identify new behavioural and biomarkers, and new digital platforms enabling us to discuss and break down the taboos of mental health, or provide extended reach of care to open up mental health care to the masses. With digitisation comes the prospect (coughs) of interoperability, which could be truly transformational. It represents a future for mental health care and physical health care that can start to be more integrated. What if we had hard evidence on how our physical health affected our mental health and were prescribed both physical and mental therapies? Where might this take us in terms of reducing recovery times or reducing the cost of care? Understanding how our mental and physical health are linked will enable us to treat the health of the individual holistically. Currently we're only really playing with parts of the puzzle. The same puzzle but in different boxes. How can we possibly hope to get a clear picture of our health? To me this is the true potential of digitization of mental and physical healthcare. That's all for today. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Rashmi, Jordan and Adonis for their incredible insights. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, where we'll be going back into the brain, but this time even deeper to discover more about the fascinating world of neurotech, where talk of hijacking our nervous systems, direct brain and machine interfaces, and the possibility of consciousness uploading are no longer limited to science fiction. We'll see you then. Invent Health is a podcast from TTP. It was written and hosted by me, Matt Millington, design and strategy consultant at TTP. It was co-written and produced by Harry Stott. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.